What up, this is your boy DJ EFN. You might know me as a drink champ, but first and foremost, I'm a proud father. I linked up with two of my other dad homies, Manny Digital and KGB, to start the Fatherhoods podcast. Each week, we bring you insider hip-hop stories, parenting, and advice and therapy. The saying is true, it takes a village, and we humorously serve as each other's trusted counsel in figuring out how not to screw up being a good dad. Fatherhood's Fatherhood's Podcast. Beats, rhymes, and diapers. Yo, Fatherhood's fam, when you're out and about with your baby and they start wilding out, what do you do? Most dudes are fumbling through the traditional baby bag their lady prepped for them, trying to find that one thing that will calm the kid down. That doesn't have to be your life. Dig no more. The firstborn diaper backpack from Fly Dad has over 21 compartments to have everything right where you need it to be for you and your baby and keeping you fly through the process. Get $20 off when you visit flydadgear.com slash fatherhoods. What's going on, guys? We're back. Another week of being fathers. <laughs> it's not going to change. That wasn't going to be the intro. That wasn't going to be the intro. It's all that needs to be said. It's all that needs to be said. <laughs> um, today, we have a special guest. It's a little bit outside of the norm of our regular guests. You know, usually we're in the in the realm of music, specifically hip hop. Um, we have uh, someone that I've been following. I've been going down the rabbit hole on YouTube, and and this guy's been doing the rounds, man. Uh, Andrew Bustamante. I hope I'm saying it correctly. He's a former CIA intelligence officer, um, which actually... What matters most on this show is that he's a father. So he could have done all kinds of craziness, but if he's not a father, it just won't make it to the cut here. <laughs> well, I think I think the story as to how he transitioned out of uh, the CIA. No, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's very, very relatable. relevant. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, welcome to the show, Andrew. I Thanks appreciate it, man. Us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just uh, doing the roll call here before we got started, looking at everybody's name. And, uh, and it's been a while since I've been in a room with somebody called KGB. So <laughs> this is going to be a really interesting conversation for sure, even though I'm pretty sure uh, you're yeah. not nearly as threatening as the last guy I talked Well, to. you know what's funny? Now that you mentioned that, KGB, our boy here, he doesn't like to, he's not on social media. He's a ghost. <laughs> he is a ghost. Is, he, look, if you notice, he's not even trying to show his face right now. <laughs> it's all Mike. It's all Mike. For a, it's all, for it's a very Mike. long time, we had to pixelate his face in anything we did to promote this podcast. I'm a, I'm a, pri- I'm a, I'm a private guy by nature. So I'm starting to wonder now. <laughs> Maybe there is some truth to this whole Maybe. <laughs> you guys have a mole. You have a Maybe mole on the You guys are adversaries in another, another <laughs> world, another universe. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Before before we continue, Andrew, you mentioned the last time you were in the room with somebody KGB, whole different ball game. Were you in handcuffs? <laughs> no, no, no. Thank goodness. You okay. you want to stay out of handcuffs when you're in my my kind of my kind of work. Right. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a very interesting story. Obviously, anytime somebody says former CIA, there's a lot of interest peaked. Yeah, everybody's eyebrow raises. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you know what? I've I've learned the uh, the business and entertainment benefit of having that kind of instant foot in the door, and it's right. super powerful, right? To be yeah. the person from CIA, and it's it's helpful that CIA is mostly full of old white guys who don't want to be discovered. So there's not a lot of competition out there for people trying to talk about it either. But uh, yeah, I was recruited into CIA in 2007. 
Uh, I was an Air Force uh, officer prior to that. And I was kind of Florida, I was, right? So yeah, I, Florida? I'm, I'm, I was raised in rural Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And, and the military was kind of my way of escaping farm life and farmland, right? So that was really what took me into the military. Uh, but my time in the military was really productive. It was exciting. I, I learned uh, Chinese language. I got, my, I got my bachelor's degree, got to travel the world a little bit. And that's what uh, made me appealing to CIA. So when I went to leave the Air Force, I got recruited, picked up by CIA. Uh, and that was kind of a crazy story on its own, the way they find you and recruit you. But to kind of fast forward, I met my wife undercover. My wife was also a CIA officer, wow. all undercover. We operated together. And, uh, and just like I'm sure every father knows, before you have kids and you're with the woman who becomes the mother of those kids, right. it's just a lot more fun. Like you, right. Oh yeah. Right. You have time, you have flexibility, you have sex. There's all sorts of things that are great. And you guys are CIA. That sounds like even a lot more fun. <laughs> but, uh, but then we, we found out while we were on an operation, we found out we were pregnant Ooh. and you know, we weren't trying not to have kids, right? We were the couple that was kind of like, Hey, let's put it in God's hands and let's decide what's going to happen. Um, right. and let's just stop. Let's just take the goalie out of the net and see, you know, when we score. And that's when we found out we were pregnant and we were both happy about it, but it was complicated because now we're on op. She's female. I'm male. She's pregnant. We all know what it's going to look like for the next nine months. Mm. Uh, so kind of tricky and hairy, but we were really excited because for the first, you know, six months or so CIA really worked with us. We worked it into our cover. We worked it into our operation. It was really pretty magical. And then, uh, they evacuated us out of our the country where we were serving. They evacuated us back to the U.S. to actually have the baby so that the baby would be in Western hospitals, American hospitals and safe and everything like that. And then uh, uh, after that, that was when CIA stopped cooperating. Now that we were parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now that we were parents and we had to deal with parenthood things, right? Yeah. Daycare and diapers and uh, doctor's visits and health checks and all this other stuff. Now we became kind of uh, an inconvenience to CIA's mission. And it became very clear and relevant and, and very important to me uh, that CIA was, was trying to make us pick between parenthood and hmm. CIA life. And I don't know about you guys, it's no choice. Like that's no, there's no right. competition there. If right, you're telling yeah. me that I can't live undercover because I want to raise my kid, I'm going to go raise my kid and you can go to hell. And essentially, that's kind of how we ended up reaching the impasse that made me leave CIA in 2014. There wasn't a productive way for us to work together to both build my career and build my family. And they were doing the same thing to my wife. So in the end, we chose parenthood over a continued life undercover. Well, I could, wow. I could definitely relate to that, to the music industry and the entertainment industry where it's not very friendly to someone who's trying to be involved and be an active parent for sure um i don't know if it, if it was you that i heard on a, on a other podcast or it was somebody else but that the cia actually encourages relationships yeah it's actually interesting yeah so when cia correct cia has such a advanced recruiting a, like uh process they know exactly who they're bringing into the building uh, my interview process was nine months long. It took four different interviews, two different psych evaluations, and a polygraph test. 
And I was one of the fastest people to get hired. The average person takes somewhere between 16 and 19 months to get hired. And they might have an extra round of interviews. So by the time you're in the building, when you're inside Langley, they know you better than you know yourself. And they're very smart because essentially what they're doing is they're creating this very small pool of very intelligent, very reliable, very oftentimes very fit people. And they're, and they're targeting people of certain ages. They really like uh, you know, people who are not married, people who have no kids, people who are between the age of, say, 27 and 33. So just, it's like a freaking before match.com was a thing, <laughs> CIA was match.com, right? Was, uh, <laughs> what's, you were saying your recruitment story was an interesting one, like how you got out of PA. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process went? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, leaving Pennsylvania was part of me joining the military. Uh, and that was, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you guys. I made a lot of decisions in my younger years based off of women. Right. And there was, there was probably the hottest girl in my little country school went to a military academy. And if not for, if not for her going to the Naval Academy, I would have never known that the military even had colleges and universities. Hmm. So, you know, the way my logic worked, if a girl that good looking is going to go to a military school, then I need to do everything I can to go to a military school <laughs> because there's going to be more women like her. Right. I was wrong. That was not how it worked, but it did motivate me. So it motivated me to get into a, a military school and the military academies are all uh, full ride scholarships and guaranteed jobs afterwards because you become an officer in the military. So that was kind of how I got out of Pennsylvania. I went to school in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy and joined up with the United States Air Force. They taught me about, they taught me how to fly. They taught me Chinese. They gave me uh, a very high level of security clearance. They taught me about nuclear weapons. And that's kind of what shaped my military career in nuclear weapons. Now, it wasn't until 2007, when I was in Montana with the Air Force, that the CIA recruited me out of there. So in, in 2007, I'm in Montana. I'm an officer. I'm not good at being an officer. Like you can tell just by looking at me, I don't like to shave. I don't like keeping my hair short. I don't like wearing <laughs> polished shoes. I don't like ironing my clothes. Mm. That's not how I roll. But uh, that's what you need to do to be successful in the military. So I kind of was able to look forward 20 years in the future and say, this is not going to be a good fit for me. Uh, so at, when, at the first opportunity I could, about five years into my military career, I started trying to get out of the military. And I was actually applying to the Peace Corps. Now, I wanted to go into the Peace Corps. What? Because... <laughs> It's very yeah. opposite. <laughs> it's ex and that's exactly why. Because to me, I was like, well, I, I know how to be a government servant and I like right. serving the people, but I don't like having to be disciplined and I don't like rigid schedules and I don't like all of this. So what's the opposite of this? That uh, must be the Peace Corps. And there was absolutely a part of me, again, thinking that, you know, I want to go to where I can find like a free spirited hippie chick who wants mm. to save the world and help the children and have some really nasty tent sex. And where am I going to find that girl? <laughs> I'm going to find her in the Peace Corps. Right. <laughs> so that was what, that was what took me down that road. So 2007, you know, the age of the internet, nobody had laptops or smartphones yet, but you know, you could go and apply for stuff online. So I start this online application for the Peace Corps and this red screen pops up and mm. the red screen says, you may be qualified for other government jobs. 
we recommend you put your you we put your application on hold for seventy two hours, and a government recruiter will reach out to you. See, I was watching watching your key, <laughs> your keystrokes right. You were preordained for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like any twenty seven year old dude, you know, you're going to tell me there might be something else. Sure, I'll I'll stick. I'll wait. I'll give you seventy two hours to see if something pops up. Uh, and that's when I got my phone call from from Langley, Virginia. And from a, you know, a nameless voice on the other end of the phone, inviting me to interview in Washington, D.C. for a national security position. And the rest is kind of history from there. Is, is, hey. your, is your background Latino? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm three quarters. Yeah, three quarters Mexican and one quarter Navajo Indian. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're yeah, that's why I get the... So you're <laughs> Colombian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good one, Manny. Hey, we're going going back to CI real quick. And after you had your your baby, um, well, one how how long were you with them after the birth of your child? And then I guess if if you were thinking that you were going to kind of continue on down that career path, were you having any kind of anxiety just in terms of because I'm, I'm assuming you know you probably have to go off to missions and be out of communication for a while and things like that like how were you wrapping your head around you know not necessarily having daily contact with your family yeah you know in those early years uh, i spent 18 months with the agency before i left after the birth of my son mm -hmm. so uh he was just over a year old we celebrated his first birthday in the washington dc area but i did not want to celebrate his second birthday there uh so it was pretty clear to me that i didn't want to go down that path and I think a big part of what made it clear is exactly your question, brother. Like when I was trying to wrap my mind around what his future would look like, I couldn't do it, right? There's a policy at CIA that requires all undercover officers to lie to their children until their children wow. are 15 years old. And then you can apply for permission to break cover with your child and let them know who you work for. But wow. permission has to be granted to you. I mean, it so, makes sense, but it's hardcore for sure. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, you're lying to your kids, first of all. And then secondly, to your point about being on missions, sometimes your kids go on missions with you mm. because when you're maintaining your cover identity and if your cover identity is a married guy with kids, because you're married with kids, like your kids are right there, left and right beside you, whether you're on the streets of Nigeria or whether you're in the streets of Paris, that means they are exposed to real risk, but mm. they're not allowed to know the real truth. Wow. And that was tough, man. It was tough for me to swallow that. It was tough for me to kind of, to calculate how much I valued my career versus how much I valued my family. Um, and for well or for ill, man, in the end, I just didn't want to calculate that. The, the numbers were not realistic. And the idea of starting off my entire relationship with my kids in a foundation of deceit, it just wasn't sitting well for me. And I'll be the first one to say that was my choice. But there are lots of fathers at CIA who choose differently than me, right? And thank God they do mm -hmm. because they're out there serving right now and I don't have to. I get to be here with my kids. Uh -huh. Yo, so the movie True Lies has some real like, like truth to yeah. it. It's a true lie. It's a true <laughs> lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed actually about watching spy fiction is there are these elements of truth that are oftentimes buried in humor because they're, they're kind of heavy, right? And that's a, that's one of those things. That's a heavy topic. 
the idea that your kids might be kidnapped to gain leverage over you, that's a heavy thing. Mm -hmm. The only way you can talk about that is if you wrap it up in some kind of joke or some kind of humor, because that sucks. The idea of that sucks. Yeah. Now, now do you ever get any pushback or people of, you know, current CIA folks or anything like when you're just even this kind of candid conversation, not like you're revealing, you know, crazy secrets, but it's still, you know, the average person, when you hear this, you're like, Oh shit, (laughs) that's crazy. Like, do you ever get folks reaching out saying you shouldn't be talking about this or any of that kind of stuff? You know, it's funny. I get, I get two kinds of feedback from CIA. I get the very official form of feedback which is usually an email or a phone call from CIA. And then I get informal feedback. And the official feedback is very, very bureaucratic, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, Mr. Bustamante, we saw that you appeared on this show or that show. And we just want to remind you that your media appearances are often interpreted as a representation of the agency. So be cautious in what you say. It's essentially their way of saying, I signed a lifetime secrecy agreement and I am forever liable for what I say if it gets published. So if I... If I tell you a secret, if I break national security law, I can be tried, I can go to prison, I can be sentenced. But then I get this awesome informal feedback from the men and women who are still serving, who don't get to talk. They don't get to appear on podcasts. They don't get to be interviewed by the news. They don't get to have their face shared with the world. Uh, and, and oftentimes the feedback I get from them is very positive, right? They, they love the fact that I'm out there sharing these true, these true stories about what life is like on the inside, about the real sacrifice, the real sacrifices that fathers and mothers make to both be present for their family uh-huh. and be present for their country and their nation, uh-huh. right? And then, of course, the stories that these uh, the children have, because there's pl- you would be shocked how many agency kids grow up, lied to for 15 years or longer, and then their relationship with their parent, because think about how rough 15 was, how yeah. miserable were you when you were from 14 to 17? Oh my gosh. Some of the hardest times of your life. So at this point in time, your parents then tell you they've been lying to you forever. I mean, there are so many broken homes at CIA, not to mention the fact that the parents, in order to cope with the decisions they're making, often turn to uh, adultery, substance abuse, drug abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it might be. Uh, And then that's that's the environment that their children end up growing up in. So- you know, I love it whenever I get something from a 25-year-old a or a 32-year-old that says, hey, my parents were CIA. I was raised in that world. They, they lied to me. I've hated them for years, but after hearing what you say, I realize it's not their fault. They were just trying to serve the greater good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that makes it priceless to have a voice. For sure. Um, one of the things I really wanted to ask you uh, for when you were going to come on here is, so we already know that the world is a scary place, right? And I would imagine you would know that more than anybody else. But when you have kids, the world becomes even more scarier. Yeah. There's one thing for yourself. You're like, ah, whatever, you know, whatever happens to me happens to me. But when you have now these children, you're like, I look at everything in a, in a way different, you know, way than I did before. Um, Has like what you did in CIA, what you did in government and in, in, when you served in the military, like, does that, do you, do you think you have more fear? Like, how do you feel about the future of everything, you know, revolving around the future of your child? Yeah. And it's a great question, man. So it, it reminds me of, of a, a joke that I don't find funny anymore that I used to find hilarious when I didn't have children. So I remember being, you know, like 30 years old 
and sitting around with my guy friends and talking about, you know, hot girls or hot chicks. And I remember we used to say, you know, hey, when I when I have kids, I hope I have a son, because if I have a son, I only have to worry about one dick. <laughs> but if I have a daughter, I have to worry about every dick oh, out there. My God. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> So that was funny when I was 30. Right. Now I'm 43 years old with a daughter. That shit is not funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you have two kids now. I have two kids now. Yeah. Uh, and a big part of that was because, you know, we knew we wanted multiple children right. and we knew that having one was complicated enough at CIA. But to get to your story or to get to your question, brother, I actually find myself less scared of the world now than I ever really? was before. And it's because of the skills that CIA taught me, right? CIA teaches us as field officers. It teaches us how to predict human behavior. It teaches us how to read body language and vocal cues for people who are lying to you. What am I it thinking teaches right us now? Tell me what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> Man, don't fuck it up with your dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, essentially that's the stuff it gives us. It tells us, uh, it gives us self-defense tools that right. are that work regardless of your fitness level, your education level, or your, or your level of athleticism, right? It, it teaches us these kind of priceless, evergreen, ageless skills. And now my children learn those skills. My son is 10 years old and he's incredible at reading body language. My daughter's five years old and she knows how to take care of herself. Not like crazy survivalist out in the woods eating right. pine cones kind of scary shit, <laughs> but my, they, my kids have code words. My kids know that when they're in a situation where they're uncomfortable, they can come to us and drop a code word. And that code word will trigger me and mom to take them and evacuate the location. Not in a panic, but in a controlled state. He said evacuate I've, the location. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just an extraction. Medivac right. coming in. And <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's little stuff like that that really equips our children beyond what the average kid has. Not to mention the fact that our kids are homeschooled. Our kids travel with us everywhere we go. So, I mean, they have, my, my children do not know adults as authority figures. They don't talk to adults like there's anything special about them just because they're bigger and heavier and older. And, uh, and because of that, they stand their ground very, very well. So I actually don't worry for my children. But the truth is that I do worry for other children. I worry a lot for the kids out there whose parents have no option but to put them in a public school that doesn't honor that child's security. Mm. Or to put them in front of a teacher that doesn't honor, you know, open-mindedness and free education. Like those things do worry me because the future that is shaping up for the world and especially for the United States is a future of people who have access to opportunities and an, um, people who do not have access to opportunities. And we're getting bogged down in this argument that has to do with politics and that this argument that has to do with the, what we've done to each other in the past. And nobody's really tuning in to the, the future challenges that await our children and the legacy that we're trying to leave to them. Now, now some would say that, that this is being done on purpose in terms of creating a lot of confusion and a lot of extra division uh, to kind of as a smoke and mirror tool because there's something else at work. Are you trying here. to say CIA is doing this? KGB? No, I'm not, no, I'm not KGB saying KGB would be the one. <laughs> <laughs> here comes, here comes the warfare. No, but I'm with you. But, but what, 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 what do you think of that? I mean, cause there's definitely uh, you know, a lot like of psyops that, type shit, right? It's yeah, just so, like, Hey, let's get everyone off the, you know, off the, the trail of what's really going on and get them, you know, just, 
confused so a, about nonsense, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're when you're dealing with secrets and when you're dealing with uh, with intelligence operations, you have to have you have to have like a an education in how to think about the unknown. And we follow these certain rules of logic. Uh, you've probably all heard of Occam's razor. Occam's razor is like a rule of logic. And you, you kind of follow the thing that is the most simple is probably also the most true. That's essentially what Occam's razor is all about. There's another razor that very few people talk about that were taught at CIA called Hanlon's razor. And Hanlon's razor says, never ascribe to conspiracy that which can be explained through idiocy. And what often happens is when people make bad decisions, we don't ever accept the fact that maybe they're just making bad decisions. We think that they're making intentional decisions that are meant to ruin something or deceive us. When I look at the policies and the leadership that our country has had over the last, honestly, probably 12 or 12 or 15 years, you can actually see how it goes beyond presidents, it goes beyond political parties, it goes beyond anything that could ever really be a true coordinated conspiracy. It starts to speak to the fact that we're just distracted. We're just making bad decisions collectively, yeah. perhaps because we're chasing the wrong target. Yeah. Hmm. Shit's fucked up. So it could yeah. be that simple. Um, what, what is, it what could is be that, that simple. Yeah. What, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that either. That you know, people are just making wrong moves and mistakes. Do you know much about, or did you guys, do you guys ever deal with, um, what is it, the the world? Fuck, I can't remember the economic forum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's watching the world economic forum, and and that's a really interesting thing to to keep in mind too. So we live in the United States, and I'm sure you guys have listeners from all over the world. It's important to keep in mind that the United States is the richest country in the world. We are the economic and global superpower, which means we are the economic superpower. We're the richest guy on the block. We're the, we're the nicest car in the parking lot. Like We are the big dog when it comes to money. Right. The World Economic Forum is there for everybody else. The fact that we're part of the WEF, or the part that we the the ro the role that we play to contribute to the WEF is a tricky role because the policies they set forth we may not agree with because they don't benefit us as the richest kid in the neighborhood, but we still want to try to promote democracy and promote equality, so we try to play nice with them where we can. Uh, but it is it's you're exactly right, KGB. Some of the policies that they put forth become you never thought you'd say. <laughs> It's so funny to hear a CIA agent say that. You can just call me K. You just call me K. It's much easier. <laughs> but you're right with the question. Like, how, how does it all work together? And is there a conspiracy there? Uh, and I think the truth is, it's just poor people, uh, poor countries, poor people, uh, people, people who don't have opportunities, they oftentimes try to bond together and take opportunities away from other people because they're trying to reach equality. They're not understanding that the better way to reach equality is by making opportunity accessible to everyone. Uh, and unfortunately, that's one of those tools of economic warfare and all warfare. You don't really want people to be equal. You really want to be dominant over people who are not equal to you. Right. Uh, but it's, a, it's nobody wants to talk about that out loud. I, I like to tell people, I have friends that go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And I'm like, look, man, I think the conspiracy is the conspiracy. <laughs> Like just ended already. Um, I, I want to go back really quick to my original question to you is 
you know, we talk about it sometimes on here, but looking at things going on like geopolitically in the world, Ukraine, China, and you knowing the stuff that you know that we don't know, um, do you ever lose any sleep at night thinking for your kids that they're going to have face, you know, World War Three, where, you know, where just something that unfathomable that we didn't even know could mm. happen, some random nuclear, you know, attack or something. Do you, is there anything in the world right now that indicates to you or that you sleep over, actually, uh, lose sleep over for your kids? Um, so I, I, it's a mixed it's a mixed answer. There is ab- there's absolutely when I look at the future of the world, I do worry for my children uh, globally. And it's because they're American citizens. And I honestly think that when you when you follow what economic analysts are thinking in the future, the United States is only going to remain the global economic superpower for about another 10 to 15 years. In 15 years, my kid's going to be 25 years old. He's got his whole life ahead of him. Only now he's going to belong to a country that is not the big dog anymore. Mm. He's going to have to be, he's going to have citizenship in a country that's the second wealthiest with the second largest military, the second most influence, right? If nothing changes. And that's kind of scary. And I can't do anything about that because I can't fix the United States. But what I can do is I can equip my children to be ready to persevere and succeed when the United States loses that level of influence. And that's one of the big reasons why uh, as a father, I'm, I'm looking at getting my children a second citizenship. So my wife and I are actually looking at getting a second citizenship, most likely in Europe, possibly in Latin America, because now when and if and when the United States falls from grace into that second or third tier of economic superiority, my kids can just pocket their American passport and travel as a Portuguese citizen a Spanish citizen, a Haitian citizen, a Costa Rican citizen, not because they want them to be embarrassed by their American passport, but because for a solid 10 years, anybody with an American passport is going to be target number one. So you you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of examples. I'd like to just harp on a little bit. Why Latin America, Europe, I think makes sense, but like my parents are Dominican, for example. And I think, yeah, maybe it does make some sense to have that as my second citizenship. But I, I was thinking about this from a European standpoint a while mm-hmm. back, um, just because of more stability, economically speaking. But then there's just like a concentration of uh, different places that one can go to if, you know, you do right. end up over there. So what? how would you look at it if it, somebody is seriously considering potentially doing some sort of dual citizenship? Yeah, so the, the questions to ask yourself are are different than what most blog articles talk about, right? So the first thing you want to ask yourself is about mobility, not social mobility, but international mobility. So a country like the Dominican Republic, uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm guessing that passport is probably recognized as a visa-free passport for somewhere to the tune of probably 60 to 90 countries. The United States passport is visa-free for 150 countries. The EU, most of your EU passports are visa-free for about 160 to 170 countries. But there are countries in Latin America that are visa-free for 190 different countries, Hmm. right? So now you have incredible mobility to literally just grab your Costa Rican passport or your Ecuadorian passport or your Argentinian passport, and you can go anywhere in the world without having to have a plan for a visa in advance. So that's the kind of mobility that I want my children to have, and I want my wife and I to have. The second big question people need to ask themselves is how old are you going to be 
when you achieve that second citizenship. Because if, if you're thinking about a second citizenship right now, I'm 43 years old right now. My son is 10, my daughter is five. So if we were to get citizenship overnight, that's not really a big advantage. We're gonna spend most of our time at home anyways, right? Like we have bedtimes and we have routines and we have edu core education we have to accomplish. So what I'm talking about is about three years down the road, we would pursue uh, residency in a foreign country. Five years after that, we would achieve residency and qualify for a passport. Eight years from now, my son is 18. My daughter is 13. Now my son has the choice whether or not to even enroll in the selective service for the United States, because he can just choose to belong to another country if he wants to just avoid military obligation altogether. Or... He can choose to join the military as a proud service member because it's his choice. It's not my choice. It's his choice. And my daughter gets to spend, you know, three solid years approaching adulthood, observing what her brother does and what the state of the world is. Meanwhile, I'll be 51 years old. My wife will be 51 years old, still young enough to be active, but not so old that we have to rely on a, a, a robust healthcare infrastructure. And that gives us a chance to spend five, seven, 10 years really deciding where we want to set up permanent residence so that we can have that long-term health care. And so mm. you're saying you do have to get citizenship in that other country, right? Or residency? Residency, right. Residency uh, through some sort of visa process or residency through buying property. That's one of the big benefits of both Europe and Latin America is, you know, 250K in in most island nations is enough to get you yeah. uh, long-term residency and the path to citizenship. Yeah. Cause I've been exploring that for, I was told, and I don't even know how true this is. I'm assuming it's true. My grandfather is originally from Spain. Um, both my parents are Cuban. He went to Cuba at a young age, but I was told that if you can, if you have that close relation to someone that was from Spain, you can get Spanish citizenship. I don't know if that extends yeah, to my gotta, children. I think you got to go through uh, Portugal now. I, really? I, yeah. The, there was For a certain Spain. The Iberian Iberian I, I Iberian it? Peninsula. Iberian yep. Peninsula, which really? comprised of both Spain and Portugal at one point in time. And so when there was, I mean, there, I think it's dependent on who your, you know, your your lineage is from. But what's like, that so you, what's that you claim? So like when the Sephardic Jews were kicked out from, from those areas, then, you know, there's there's ways that you can go about confirming lineage and then trying to get dual citizenship. Look at Kay coming up with the anthropology lesson. They taught the KGB well. <laughs> my, 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 my sister, my, my youngest sister did it. She just got span, uh, Spanish citizenship. She kind of put me on to the whole process. It's a very lengthy process. And, and for Spain, they cut it off at a certain point point but in portugal you can there's still ways to go around it so. so look at this this is what i'm talking about right there's four of us on the call three of us have already admitted to doing research and beginning the effort to get a different citizenship manny i don't know if you've also done that but this is what's so fascinating there are huge chunks of the american population who didn't even know this was an option mm -hmm. so this is what i'm talking about when i say the future is about the people who have and have not it's not about having money. It's not about having a network. It's about having access to opportunity. Whether that means your friends give you an idea that you can research or like Kay's family, someone in your family gives you an idea that you can research. It's all about the people who have opportunities 
to change their future versus the people who don't have those opportunities. The, the, the four of us are so much better equipped for the future that's coming than probably half the people listening to us right now. But the, the one thing that has me or had me hesitating on the dual citizenship is I wanted to know, is there some downside to your regular U.S. citizenship to have dual citizenship? The biggest downside is uh, is the tax exposure. Um, so if you are if you're well, there's, there's two kind of related. Right. One is your employment status. And two is your tax exposure. If you work in a job that just forces you to stay in the United States, and you'd be shocked how many jobs actually do require you to serve to be in the United States, working on American servers, working on American networks, it's it's kind of shocking. Even remote employees oftentimes have in fine print that they cannot work from outside of the United States. So if you if you don't have a job that lets you work abroad, or if you have a job that doesn't exist abroad, you're kind of stuck. Uh, and that's important because most of the United States is a high-tech industry. It's not easy to find high-tech jobs in Portugal or Spain or Italy or France or or Costa Rica. Right. And the second thing is your tax exposure because America does a really good job of making sure that American citizens don't want to leave the United States because you actually get exposed to two levels of taxes. You get exposed to the taxes that you owe within the country where you live, and then you get exposed to a second set of overage taxes for the United States to maintain your citizenship. So just to give you an idea, if you were to live, if you were to leave the United States to go live in Slovakia, it is a 52% base tax rate in Slovakia. Oh it's like God. 40. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's like 42% in most of the EU. So you're paying almost half of your wages to the state. And then if you make more than, I think it's $101,000 right now, anything above that, you also owe taxes back to the United States. So the margin of what you're actually living on is smaller and smaller. But if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner, if you're a consultant or anything like that, you, you kind of don't care anymore because now you can, uh, you can select which country you earn your income from. You can build a company in that country, which gives you tax benefits. Uh, you can take advantage of tax benefits here in the United States. There's lots of ways to get smart about it, but those are the two big downsides to your question. So it's mainly economic reasons would be the only downside, which tax stuff. But you're saying for mobility, when if shit hits the fan, basically, you want to be able to have that mobility. Absolutely. You want to have that mobility. And if depending on your health status, this is a, a dirty, a dirty underbelly people don't talk about. In the United States, we force everybody to have health insurance. And that mm -hmm. is health insurance is important because when you get to be much older, then you have more health issues. So that's how, by forcing you to have health insurance, that's how they make sure the state doesn't have to pay for your health care. In mm. Europe, in Europe, part of the reason you pay 40% taxes is because health insurance is universal. The sticky underbelly is if the state deems that your health status is not a net profit to the state, they will simply deny you the care that you need. Damn. Oh. Because the state is what's paying for your health care. So if it doesn't benefit the state to keep you alive from 70 to 80 years old, then they have no reason to pay your health bills. So that's why even in Europe, there are private health insurance companies because people want to be kept alive. People want to be right. taken care of. They don't want their future to be a, a decision made by bureaucrats. Right. So, so do you know if in those cases, if you're denied care, can you essentially say, I'm not contributing to the state anymore? Or is that not how it works? Yeah, That's not how it works, yeah. Because your taxes is part of a pool of taxes. And then if you don't contribute, then 
you know, then they revoke your citizenship status and then they, they, you know, escort you to the airport <laughs> and you can go use your other passport. <laughs> I'd like to pivot real quick. Cause we talk about this all the time here about the impact of social media and our kids. And I use it as a scare tactic, like crazy with my kids, like, yo, TikTok, be careful. They know everything that there is to know about you, you know, all that stuff. And without, you know, getting you in trouble, like how, how much, how much do you like with your own children? How much do you allow them to be on screens? Are, are there filters that you use? Like, how do you allow them to approach the, the open web? Yeah, so we actually approach this question through the lens of childhood development. So the human brain goes through four major phases of development. So the first major phase is from zero to five. Basically from zero to five, all children's, their brain in a child is a giant sponge, which means they absorb everything. They don't. They can't determine what's true and what's false. They can't determine what they believe in, what they don't believe in. They just absorb everything that's that's given to them. Then from five to 13, children develop the ability to choose what they are interested in, but they still have to absorb everything. So they might be more interested in art than they are in science, but they're still going to observe, absorb the science information that's given to them. So the brain has been throttled a little bit, but the child really just has control over what they can focus on. They really still will absorb everything else. From 13 to about 21 is when we develop the ability in our brain to reject information. So now this is where information comes in, we believe what we choose to believe, we reject the things that we don't agree with. And then from 21 on is when we actually have the ability to stop learning. We can simply choose to, to block our brain's ability to grow new neural links and make new neural connections. And you've seen that with, you know, with ignorant people who just, they don't listen to anything new. They only care about what they believed when they were 13 years old. So those are the four major developmental phases. We follow those phases when we decide what to expose our children to through screens, through social media, through the internet. From zero to five, we were a strict no screen house. Wow. There's, there was, there's nothing for them. The screen is going to just deliver information and we have no idea what that information is and we have no idea what they're going to absorb. So what's the point? There's no benefit to them. There's no benefit to us. So we don't need it. We can learn from books or we can control what we choose to watch as a family in certain blocks of time, like a Christmas movie during the Christmas season, right. right? But the kids never had their own screens. From five to 13, where both of my kids are now, we have very regulated uh, screen experiences, right? So we have uh, blocks on their, on their iPads. We have hours of the day where they get to use the television, where they get to use uh, video gaming systems. It's, it doesn't feel strict or, or um, overly controlled to them because they've always been in a house where we value work, you know, learning from books, working in workbooks, creating things with our hands, being artistic, going outside. Uh, so they really like the time that they get behind their, their, behind their screens. Right, it's like not like we're taking something away. Yeah. Right. It's just the way it is. And then we're preparing them because once they're 13, they're going to have full control over the screens that they have. Our job right now is to equip them so that when they're 13 and they have full control, they can make reasonable decisions and they can choose what information to let in and what information to question. So basically we all fucked up. 
<laughs> well, the only way I, I'll say I did is we didn't. My kids don't own their screens, but we're definitely on some screens. They own their screens and your screen. They take that. <laughs> it's true. Two kids comes clutch all the time. I still, my, I mean, my kids. I love my kids. My kids are great kids. They they follow the the expectations ex like you know expertly, but they're still kids. Right. And they still act like kids. So there's many a time when I'm on my screen doing something for the business or doing something for work. And my son will come over and swipe my screen to the left or to the right <laughs> and ask some question. And I'm like, dude, you don't touch somebody else's screen. Right. <laughs> he, he, yeah, it's just, that's what they do. He's 10 years old. <laughs> do you ever feel that, um, your, your military and CIA background that, that it kind of might make you more strict with your kids or do you ever fear that that comes in too much into your home life? Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. It does. I always, I always have to kind of second guess myself. And then I also am very blessed to have a wife that I trust implicitly. So I take it to my wife too, whenever I start second guessing myself about things like, Hey, am I being too strict about this? Is this rule too intense? Because I know what worked for me. I know that the right. military kind of honed my talent by reducing my options. I saw it, right? And as a 43-year-old man, I can look back and I know that it happened. I know that the reason I was successful in my life is because, you know, I was chasing tail until I was 27 years old. Right. Thank God that the amount of tail I could chase was regulated by requirements at the Air Force and CIA, or else who knows what I would have landed when I was 21, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So I certainly feel like, like discipline and strict guidelines worked for me. My wife grew up completely differently. She grew up in a very freedom loving house, a very open house, and they made mistakes too. But here we are together kind of hashing this thing out together. And she's a really good counterbalance to make sure that I'm not being overly strict. Uh, and, and children being what they are, they don't know any different. So it's not like my kids come to me and compare our house to the neighbor's house because you know, even though we do things differently, they just accept because they're in that age range where they accept everything. So they just accept these are our rules. Those are the neighbor's rules. That's not going to last forever. So that's why I want to make sure my wife helps keep me honest. You said something that um, brings me to a story that just happened in my house. So my daughter turned 16 recently and in her mind, Coming into her, you know, now as the school year ends, she's going to be starting her junior year next fall of high school. And in her mind, she thought she was getting a car. Like, <laughs> her friends like, did. <laughs> like a car was just magically going to show up, all like a birthright, right? Uh-huh. And and I was kind of joking at first, and I was like, I don't know how we got into the conversation, but ultimately, like that was her expectation. And I'm like asking her, like, yo, for real? This is really what. Like, <laughs> <laughs> when, when did we give you this as like the expectation, right? And I'm not not trying to be a dick. I'm just like asking her, like, when did the, when did we give these signals to you? And it, and we get to the point where it's just like, yeah, her friends, and this is how their friends operate. And I'm like, their rules and the way they do things are their rules and the way they do things. And I and I could understand why that's difficult for you to understand because everybody around her seems to be going down the same path. And it, and then you know you got to like come down and be like, look. It's not a means thing. Like if we if we we could figure out how to get you a car, that's not the issue. The issue is you got to be at a certain level of responsibility, knowledge, and um, understand the sweat equity that comes with having this thing. Because 
It's not a toy. This is this mm. deadly weapon. If you if you take it for granted, right? And so we want to make sure she goes through the right steps and earning a portion of the money to get her vehicle is a big part of that. She she had a bit of a breakdown after mm. we came to that realization. But my wife and I, you know, my wife was like kind of like folding, like, oh, well, maybe we get. Yeah. I was like, no. You should have said, you should have said, I told you you didn't have to have your quinceanera. I could, that money could have been used for something. <laughs> we did, we did ask her. We did ask her about that. Back right. then, she's not going to remember. She's like, oh, whatever. Right. Yeah. But, but now it's like, no, you better keep your motherfucking foot down on that floor, babe, because you can't backtrack now. Tell you about that quinceanera, man. <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to throw that shit in her face. No, no. I definitely wouldn't want to do that. But I know on the other side of this, when she earns it and she understands the, you know, the training that you needed to go through in order to make sure you're doing the right thing and all that stuff, her having her vehicle is going to mean so much more to her than what her friends, you know, and, and their experiences have been. So like, it's, it's interesting to hear you say like your kids are good with your rules versus their other people's rules. And they recognize that because it's an important thing because what they see outside will can cause some rifts internally as well. And keep in mind, your daughter's 16. My kid, my oldest is 10. So developmentally, they're in different phases. Right. Right. So you're absolutely in that phase. I'm, I'm going to be there too. They might be good with the rules now. That doesn't mean they're not going to take social cues when they're 16 years old. I might find myself in the same position you are. But what I will absolutely compliment you on right away is that you validated how she reached her conclusion. So you didn't make yourself out to be an enemy. No. Instead, yeah, instead you were like, oh, I see where that came from. That's totally reasonable. I accept that that explanation. Here's where things, here's where I didn't do what I needed to do. And you kind of right. took that ownership. Dude, that when it comes to a teenager and it comes to managing any kind of relationship with an adult, when you can validate the other adult's point of view, you immediately build influence, right? And that's you're in a phase where you're dealing with adults. Like it's and as they get older. They're just going to be more and more independent and more and more adult. I don't know about your guys' relationship with your parents. I'm certainly in charge of how much time my mom and my dad get to see me. And I <laughs> right. hope that my kids have a very different relationship with me than what I have with my parents right now. Mm. Right, right. Another difference is that uh, your kids aren't homeschooled, Manny, and his are. Right. I'm sure that that helps in mitigating like outside influence. Um, and, and going back to that, how did you guys come to the conclusion that that homeschooling was the right thing like what made you want to do that so our business is an international business we teach spy skills to people all over the world and usually we teach spy skills to executives ultra high net worth uh or or national security infrastructure um uh, clients so my kids have lived in the middle east they've lived in portugal wow. they've traveled throughout europe they've traveled throughout uh throughout north america uh, so we knew we were going to be on the move from the very beginning uh, and then second to that, I also did not want to outsource my children's education to some teacher. I, I didn't want to make that the responsibility of somebody who was teaching in exchange for a paycheck. Whether they are private school or public school or otherwise, they're my kids. And the thing that I left CIA to do was invest in my kids. So there are certain things that I feel like I, it's not responsible for me to outsource those to someone else. I should not outsource my children's security to the local police force. Their security is my, my responsibility. Teaching them how to be secure individuals is my responsibility. I can't trust the police to do that. 
The police are good at enforcing a law that's broken, but that's all they're good at. That's all they're supposed to be good at. They're not good at preventing people from breaking the law. They're just good at catching the dude who broke the law. And the school is good at teaching large groups of students to a basic minimum standard so that they can progress to the next level. That's what a school is good at. If you want something other than that, you got to go to someplace other than a school. So those were kind of the things that led my wife and I to, to jointly agree that we wanted to homeschool our kids. Do you both, was are that you both the teachers? Sorry, man. Yeah. Are you both the ones doing the active teaching? Yeah, we both do the active teaching, but it's not in it's not a 50-50 split. It's more like a 70-30 split. I do most of the teaching. My wife does some additional teaching. We're just we're different people. I'm a teacher by trade. I mean, my business is a teaching business. We educate other people. Um, and I like it. My wife, on the other hand, is like legit brilliant. So when my wife tries to it's hilarious to watch my wife explain something to the kids <laughs> because they're kids and she talks to them like they're college students. And I'm yeah. sitting here, I'm like, my love, I don't understand half of the four syllable words that you just <laughs> used. How is, how is, how is our son going to be able to clean the bathroom any better after you just walked him through the scientific, you know, <laughs> nomenclature for Clorox bleach? <laughs> how hard was that for you guys to set up? Like you made the decision. This is what we want to do for our kids. You, I mean, curriculums have to be put together. You, there has to be some sort of, I guess, agreement with the state on how you're going to go about it so that you meet certain requirements. How do you think about college? Like, how did all that come? Because I'm overwhelmed just even asking the question. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um, we we went we did some research, of course, beforehand so that we could get a sense of how big the question was. But what ended up happening, Manny, is is like you said, we started finding ourselves overwhelmed with all the what ifs. There's a concept that CIA tries to teach us, and it's a concept of wow versus how. And there are some like TED Talks out there about something similar. I don't know if you ever heard anything like that. But, uh, but the idea is when somebody presents an idea to you, there are two types of people. There's one type of person who hears an idea, and then they immediately say, how are you going to do that? How is that going to happen? How are you going to afford that? How are you going to pay for that? And then there's another kind of person who hears an idea and says, wow, imagine what else we could do after we did that. Mm -hmm. And CIA tries to train us to be wow people so that we can always reach the most impactful mission objective with the least amount of resources, even when the odds are against us. So my wife and I are both wow people. She's a little bit more how than I am, but that's essentially when we face down the barrel of the homeschool question, both of us were like, wow. Could you imagine raising our children in a culture where they don't even see adults as authority figures? Could you imagine a 12-year-old that directs their own learning? Could you imagine letting our children deep dive into whatever subject they want to study when they want to study it, right? And that just, we couldn't resist that wow. And we knew we're pretty smart. We'll figure the how out along the way. All right. That's dope. All right, before we go, we didn't get a chance, and I really, I'm very interested. We, 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 we're going to need a part two, I think. I, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we might. Yeah, we and we have to talk 1990s hip hop because you said <laughs> the only thing I know. Too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. I, I guess maybe we do a teaser and we can figure out how to do a part two. But tell us a little bit about Everyday Spy, and you, you alluded to it a little while ago. So you teach high net worth individuals, sounds like, you know, big time leaders. He's signing up. 
<laughs> no, yeah, the fatherhoods were set. <laughs> I could, I could see E signing up, and then coming out of there with a ninja mask. And- <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. So the mission of Everyday Spy is to give an unfair advantage by teaching spy skills to everyday people. That's the mission, right? So a lot of that has to do with how you get ahead in your career. The everyday person. That's our that's our primary target. Is the everyday guy, the everyday dad, the everyday mom. How do you get ahead in your career? How do you get ahead in your own health and fitness? How do you get ahead in in your business and in growing your wealth, right? How do you get ahead, not by following the rules, but by breaking the right rules so you don't get caught? Because that's what spies do, right? And we have all sorts of programs to teach people how to do that. From my podcast, I have a podcast called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. I'm very fortunate to have a top 10 podcast on iTunes. Let's go. Yeah. And then I have, uh, and then I have a website and I have, you know, a pretty, pretty solid YouTube following, um, that's growing. Right. But that's how we kind of get that out to the everyday person. But what ends up happening is the way that we are able to pay the costs to feed the everyday person is because we have corporate clients and high net worth clients that want to take the same skills and then institutionalize them. Uh. So we have, you know, a, a corporate client comes in and gives us 300 people to train. That more than pays the bills for us to be able to keep the podcast running, keep the spy skills running, keep the blog post running where we can feed everybody else. You know what I mean? One of my big goals for the next two years is actually to start a nonprofit offshoot of Everyday Spy so that we can actually go into inner cities and rural neighborhoods and start creating real in-person events to reach those families and those individuals who don't have access to uh, a, a screen to learn digitally or they don't have access to a school system that supports them. Yeah, that would be dope. The Bronx could use you. So whenever you're ready, I got I got the plug. Why you got to take him automatically to the Bronx, bro? Why can't he come down south to Miami? <laughs> I mean, Miami Dade is a no-brainer, but you know, we could we could do the Bronx. Um, where do people find out more if they're interested in Everyday Spy? Absolutely. You can find me at my homepage, everydayspy.com. And if you're on social media, you can follow me at Everyday Spy on all the, all the media platforms. And then, of course, if you're in the podcast space, look for the Everyday Espionage Podcast. Dope. Wonderful. Oh. Dope. And I'm hoping I could have you in person one day here in Miami so we could have a sit down, do hood talks. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Because, I mean, Miami is just down the street. I'm up at Jacksonville. So right. I'm, in your, I'm in your hood like dope. three times dope. a year. <laughs> no, appreciate you man for coming through my pleasure take care guys all right thank it you, is, man thank you peace yo be a father if not why bother son a boy can make him but a man can raise one be a father to your child be a father to your child